if you haven't been here in recent weeks, we're doing a little experiment, I guess, and, and trying a narrative-style preaching as we look at the, the day and the life of Jesus, that final day of the crucifixion, and then today, moving to the resurrection. So we've been doing this. We did it in the first service. Now I want to frame the picture for the second service. So it's the Sunday after Passover, the third day after the crucifixion of Jesus, and a small group of his followers, all of them women, are returning to the upper room where Jesus' apostles are holed up. These women are just back from a trip to the tomb where they had hoped to perform the proper burial riches for Jesus. In that culture, that was hugely important. But they've come with unbelievable news. They found the stone that sealed the tomb, rolled away, and the Lord's body missing. They all talk at the same time. Some of them are trying to tell the story chronologically. Others are interrupting them. Some of them are saying, we saw angels while we were at the tomb. And others are interrupting to say that they met Jesus himself on the road, that he's alive, that he's come out of the grave. The apostles who are in this upper room, probably the same one where they spent the evening of the Passover, the apostles find this utterly unbelievable. It's nonsense. When... St. Luke, who was both a physician and a chronicler, he's sort of Dr. Watson to St. Paul Sherlock Holmes, when he selected a term to describe the apostles' impression of the woman's report, he chose one with medical overtones. In the medical field, the word he used describes the delirium that's associated with a high fever. These men think these women are delirious. They're out of their minds. By afternoon, some of Jesus' followers are headed home. It feels very much like this company of disciples is disbanding. Now that Jesus is dead, there's really no reason to stay around Jerusalem. And yet they hesitate to leave. These people have become brothers and sisters and best friends. Their lives have been woven together. But in the last 48 hours... They felt the fabric of their relationships fraying and tearing. Will they ever see each other again now that Jesus is gone? After some faltering and uncertain, tearful goodbyes, two of the disciples begin their journey home to the village of Emmaus, which is about seven miles outside the city. Now, let me step out of the story for just a second. We know that one of these disciples is a guy named Cleopas. And we think that people sometimes called him Clopas for short. The other disciple is not named. We don't even know if this other Jesus follower is a man or a woman. Though some scholars have argued that it is a woman and believe in fact that she is Cleopas's wife. Now, let me emphasize that we don't know that. The text doesn't tell us. What we do know is that ancient writers often did not mention women by name when they were with men. And that may lend credence to the idea that this is a woman. And we also know that these two people talk as if they've known each other for a long time and have had lots of practice interrupting each other. So Cleopas' companion may have been just some longtime friend, best friend, even a brother, or it may have been his wife. Now, for the sake of the story... I'm going to refer to his companion as if she were his wife. But please keep in mind, 
that we don't know that for sure. That's not the point of the story. When you go home, don't say, well, the one thing I learned today in church was that that was Cleopas' wife. Seven miles is a long walk, especially after a couple of sleepless nights and the emotional firestorm these people have just been through. As they walk, Cleopas and his wife hash over the events of the previous week. They talk about how things had come together. That's the meaning of the word that St. Luke uses when he narrates the story. But what they really feel is that things have fallen apart. Everything has fallen apart. The two are clearly not on the same page. Anyone who knew them well would notice the tension between them right away. Mrs. Cleopas insists that Jesus is alive that the women did see angels and met the Lord himself. Cleopas says, you only saw what you wanted to see. It's a hallucination or something, maybe a vision. See, he knows what really happened. In fact, he saw it happen. Jesus is dead. Now, maybe his body isn't in the tomb, but what does that prove? The chief priests probably did take it, to desecrate it. They hate him so much, they want to end the movement. But Mrs. Cleopas shoots back, you weren't there. What do you know about it? You only think that because you didn't see him yourself. You think we're making all this up? And it goes like that, step after step, mile after mile. They fall into silence for a while. If you've been married and you've had arguments, you know what this is like. And then, when she can't stand it anymore, she says something like, if there was no angel in the cave, who was speaking to us? And he says, if you really saw an angel, why didn't Peter see him? Why didn't John? Do you think the Most High would send his holy angels to talk to a bunch of women? Ouch. Why, women can't even testify in a courtroom. And that was true. Because women, the rabbi said, are too excitable and they can't get things straight. Now, I'm not saying that, okay? This is part of the story, but... That's what they said. Why would God choose women to be witnesses to something like this? Now, it's this this point as they're walking that they first realize that someone has come up behind them. How long he's been there, they don't know. How much he's heard, they don't know. Nor do they know who he is. The headdress that he wears partially covers his face, but it's not just that. There's something odd about him. Uh, There's a power to him, an energy, and he seems strangely familiar, but they can't place him. What they don't know is that this is the risen Jesus himself who's joined them. How often it happens that when his people talk about him, he shows up. And when he does so, it's often so unobtrusive, in such an unobtrusive way that people are at first unaware of his presence. When Luke tells the story, he says, literally, their eyes were held. The word he uses could mean arrested. His eyes were arrested not to know him. So what was it that held their eyes? Well, probably the same kinds of things that keep us from recognizing him. Anger, fear, preoccupation with other things, lack of faith, false beliefs, a failure to take him at his word. Now, Jesus walks up with these people. He's listening to them. Think about how he feels. Here are two of his friends. He loves these two. I mean, he gets a kick out of them, really. But they're hurting. They're angry. 
They have no idea what they're going to do next, what life is going to be like. So does Jesus hurry to tell them what's what? I mean, that's probably what I would have done, but not Jesus. He doesn't tell them. He asks them a question. He knows that these two friends of his need to speak. They need to get out what's inside of them before he can speak truth into them. They have to be emptied, if you will, of a lot of falsehood before they can be filled with the truth. Now, you see that same kind of thing other places in the scriptures. For example, the story of Elijah. You remember it? The Old Testament story of Elijah? He was free-falling into despair. He had failed His life was as black as it could be. The Lord had good news to share with him, direction to give him, but before he would tell him anything, he first had to ask him something. And he asked him more than once. Elijah, what are you doing here? What's going on? Tell me about it. And then he gave Elijah time to spill out his answer. Jesus does the same kind of thing with these two. He knows knows that the wound must be cleaned out before the healing is going to start. So he asked them, what are, you, what are you talking about? It sounds like you're batting some pretty, pretty big questions around. In the presence of this unexpected stranger, they grow quiet. They stop in their tracks, and Cleopas, who is tired and who is emotionally frayed, looks down at the ground and says a little peevishly, I think, Are you the only one in Jerusalem who hasn't heard what's happened during the last few days? The funny thing, I wonder if it struck Jesus as funny. I think it might have. The funny thing is, their new companion is the only one in Jerusalem who knows what's happened in these last few days. But instead of telling them, he just asks, what's happened? He knows he has to let them get all that emotion and misunderstanding out before he can get the truth in. So Cleopas is a little grouchy at first, but he and Mrs. Cleopas soon open up because, you know, it's not hard to talk to Jesus. And in fact, once they start talking, they can't stop. They tell their story. It's fun to read this in Greek. They tell their story in a staccato tempo. Boom, boom, boom. And they keep interrupting each other, I'm pretty sure, as they speak. One starts a sentence, the other finishes it. They're like... Two professional jugglers throwing their words at each other, catching them and tossing them back. Kind of like a lot of long-married couples I've known who keep interrupting each other in order to tell the story straight. What happened, Cleopas says, and he says it with a kind of scorn in his voice, but Mrs. Cleopas explains, well, we're talking about the things that happened to Jesus the Nazarene. Then Cleopas interrupts because he thinks the stranger doesn't know about the Nazarene. He was a man of God, a prophet, dynamic in work and word, blessed by both God and all the people. And then Mrs. Cleopas butts back in. But our high priests and leaders betrayed him. They got him sentenced to death and crucified him. And we had our hopes up that he was the one, the one about to deliver Israel. And now, she says, it's the third day since it's happened. And with that, Cleopas stops his wife with a look. A knowing look. And he says, yeah, it's the third day since it happened. And some of our women have got everybody all riled up and confused. Early this morning, they were down at the tomb and they couldn't find the body. So they come back with this story that angels had appeared to them and that Jesus was alive. So some of our friends went down there 
And the tomb is empty, just like the women said, but they didn't see angels and they sure didn't see Jesus. Now, Cleopas thinks that another man will feel the way that he feels about this story. Women are unstable and impetuous. That's what the historians say. Surely this man would agree with the sages. He who talks much with women brings evil on himself and at last will inherit Gehenna, hell. He expected his new companion, this man, to share that sentiment. He didn't. Instead, he shook his head and said, so thick-headed, so slow-hearted. Why can't you simply believe all that the prophet said? Don't you see that these things had to happen? That the Messiah had to suffer and only then enter into his glory? Now, if someone had asked Cleopas that question a couple days ago, he would have said, that's just crazy. That's the stupidest thing I ever heard. The Messiah suffer? I imagine that Cleopas and his wife look at each other. Who is this guy? Why is he talking like that? And yet, his words and the way he says them, they remind them of something. But Jesus keeps talking and starting at the beginning with the book of Moses, Genesis. He goes all the way through the prophets and points out to them everything in the scriptures that refers to him. One thing, then another. It's the greatest Sunday school lesson ever. He tells them about the son of Eve. This is Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He tells them about the son of Eve who was to suffer the serpent's poisonous bite on his heel but crush the foul thing's head. That was Messiah, he says to them. That's Messiah. He reminds them about the promises to Abraham that through his descendant, all the nations of the earth, all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. And then he says, that's Messiah. He goes on, Moses Moses promised that a prophet would come who would be like him. That's Messiah. He quotes one psalm after another, Psalm 16. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your holy one see decay. It's Messiah. Psalm 22, I'm poured out like water. Now think of this. They just watched the crucifixion. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax. It's melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. And then he looks at them and says, Messiah. Psalm 34, the Lord protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. Messiah. Isaiah 53, he was bruised for our transgression. Messiah, he was crushed for our iniquities. Messiah, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Messiah, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him, on Messiah, the iniquity of us all. As, as the stranger recounts scripture after scripture, story after story, their heads begin to swim and their hearts begin to burn. The idea of a God greater than they've ever imagined starts to form in their minds. A God who swallows up death forever, 
who removes the disgrace of his people from all the earth, who wipes the tears from his children's eyes. They see a God before them who rules history, who cannot be stopped, who is faithful to all his promises and loving towards all he's made. They begin to believe that the invincible grave could be pried open. Death could be defeated and robbed of its prey. Vistas of glory and grace begin to open before their eyes. Waves of wonder and awe sweep over them as he speaks. And then they're home. The last hours have passed as if they were minutes. Their strange teacher and companion shows no sign of stopping, but they beg him to come in. You've got to come in. It's late. We insist you come and at least have something to eat with us. And stay the night. Please stay a little while longer. And so he agrees and he goes in with them. But they've been gone for a week. The only food in the house is some bread that they've brought with them. But they pour out a glass of wine and they set the bread on the table. Now it's Cleopas' house and so it is his duty, always his duty, in your own house, to bless the food. But before he has a chance, the stranger picks up the bread blesses it, and breaks it. And that did it. It was like they were wearing a veil over their eyes. And at that moment, it suddenly fell. Without a doubt, they knew him. It's the master. And then he's gone. He disappears. He's there one second, just as truly as they're there, and then he's gone. But they've just seen Jesus. He's alive. They can't believe it, but they do believe it. They sit there stunned, almost as if they've been turned to stone, the broken bread still in their hands. They look at each other in silence. Moments pass, and then one of them says, My heart was burning on the road. And the other says, Mine too. We should have known. Without even talking about it, which is really odd for these two, they've already reached a decision. They've just walked seven miles. They haven't slept in two days. But they know they're going to be up all night anyways. They've got to go back to Jerusalem and tell the others. They've got to go tell Peter. All of them, they need to know. So they take the bread with them. They put the wine in a wineskin and they head out the door. The sun is setting. They still have a couple of hours to walk. They talk some. They go over the things that Jesus told them, but then they fall quiet, lost in the wonder of all of it. See, they still hardly know what has happened, but they do know that this changes everything. When they get back to Jerusalem, they head through the city, turn west into the new city, up the stairs to that upper room, and they find the apostles still there. Once again, they pound on the door. Once again, everyone inside grows absolutely silent. Cleopas says, it's me, let me in. He hears the bolt slide and sees the door open on faces that are shining in the lamplight. And then quickly the door is closed and bolted again. The excitement in that room is palpable. They can feel it. Before Cleopas can get out what he wants to say, someone says, it's really happened. The master has been raised. Simon saw him. He talked to him. 
Peter signals that it's true, though he doesn't share any of what was said. But the two from Emmaus are not so reserved. They can't wait to tell everyone what they've heard and seen. And just like before, one starts talking and then interrupts the other one as they go through their story. Every eye in the room is turned on them. Occasionally, someone stops them in mid-sentence to ask a question. Cleopas has just reached the part of the story, the climax of the story. He tells them how they put the bread on the table, and before he could bless it, the stranger lifted it to heaven, blessed it, and broke it. And then it was like scales just fell from their eyes. It was Jesus, but as soon as they saw him, as soon as they knew it was him, he was gone. He just disappeared. Even as he tells the story in that room, it feels like the room is growing lighter. There's a freshness in it. It wasn't there before. And then someone realizes that there is another person standing right in the middle of them, listening. He smiles, and he says something like, Shlama Alekum. Hi. At his voice, their hearts stop. They are in the presence of what? Of the undead? Of the impossible? Their stomachs are in their throats. Their minds are frozen with fear. Even Peter and the Cleopases, who have seen him already, are stunned. The only person in the room who seems to be comfortable and easy in himself is Jesus. It's almost humorous. In fact, it is humorous. They think he's a ghost. He's the furthest thing from a ghost that they have ever seen. They are far less substantial than he is. He smiles and says, look at my hands. Look at my feet. It's really me. Touch me. If you want, look me over from head to toe. A ghost doesn't have muscle and bone like this. He turns his hands out for them to see. They're holes made by the nails. He lifts his feet. They can see the piercings. He shows them his side. It's a while before the people in the room even begin to breathe again. And they can hardly believe their eyes. I mean, he's right there, but he can't really be there. He's dead. They saw him die. But Jesus smiles, and his smile lights the room and fills their hearts with hope. And he says, got anything to eat around here? Someone gives him a piece of leftover fish. This is the thousandth time this has happened over their experience together, and he eats it. Not bad, he says. And then he laughs. His laughter is like waves of joy. He sits down. They've seen him do this hundreds of times, too. And then he teaches the larger group the same lesson he taught the Cleopases. And his teaching just opens their minds to the scriptures, things they never realized before. They see. Sometimes people say to me, I don't understand the Bible. If you're in that place, what you need is for Jesus to open your mind to the scriptures, to teach you the way he taught his friends. And he will do that if you'll ask him. After he opens their minds, after he teaches them about himself in the Bible, he summarizes it all this way. This is from Luke's gospel. You can see now how it's written that the Messiah suffers. The Messiah suffers, rises from the dead, 
on the third day. And then a total life change through the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed in his name. He explains to them that this has always been the plan. Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead. This was in the works before Adam and Eve were in the garden. It was the plan when God first made promises to Abraham. It was this that the the psalmists and the prophets wrote about. And now, guys, it's happened. It happened. Messiah has suffered and risen from the dead on the third day. But, Jesus says, that's not the end of the story. Because of what Messiah suffered, because death has been defeated, it's possible for people to live in a new way, a total life change. Repentance, which is the evidence and the joyful expression of forgiveness. And you, he said to them, you have a special part to play in this. Your role is to announce far and wide that a new kind of life, a a with God life, my life, is available because of who I am and what I've done. You're witnesses, he tells them. Now, he doesn't tell them that they're salesmen. They're witnesses because they have themselves entered the new kind of life that he's talking about and are seeing what it's like for themselves. They have just experienced repentance. They're experiencing it right now. And they're on their way to a total life change, and it's all because Jesus died and rose again. They don't have to sell the good news. They just have to live it. See it. Be changed by it. Then, when they talk about it, their words will convince people that new life, the best life, the life they've always wanted, is possible. And it comes from Jesus. Now let me step out of that part of the story and into our part of the story. Because we're still in the same story. Different chapter, same story. The announcement Jesus wanted his friends to make, the announcement of a total new life, is still relevant. It is possible to have a with God life because Jesus died and rose again. I don't pretend to understand how all that works. But I have experienced it. I have been and being supported by the priceless gift of repentance. I wouldn't change it for Warren Buffett's portfolio. I have known and accepted and rested in the forgiveness of sins. And it's a beautiful thing. I don't profess to advance far in this total new life, but I've advanced far enough that I want more. That's the way it always works. Far enough that I don't ever want to go back. Far enough that I want everyone else to experience it too. It is life with God made possible through Christ, lived with the constant help of his spirit. As part of this continuing story, we're part of the story. I announce it to you now. Repentance, this beautiful, priceless thing, and forgiveness of sins, which frees us from fear and restores our souls, is available.
In fact, God is offering it to you right now. It's yours. But it only comes through a connection to Jesus. Now look, I know that some of you haven't seen enough of this new life to know for sure that you want it. But I'm pretty sure that some of you have seen enough of the old life to know that you don't want it anymore. So are you ready? Ready to see things differently? Ready to give your life to God and follow his son? Ready to start fresh, a new life? If you are, it's yours to receive. It comes with Jesus. Let's pray. And I'm going to have you just close your eyes and say to you, if you're ready to do this, you're ready to make that change. You want God in your life. You want to be in his life. Would you tell him that? I'm going to give you a prayer that you can use, but you can pray your own prayer in your own words, and it needs to come from your own heart. But you can say something like this. God, I've tried to live for myself my way. I haven't admitted your claim on me. But doing it my way was a mistake, and I know it. I've sinned against you. I've been unloving to others. I've missed out on the life you intended for me. I've messed everything up but I'm coming to you now. I trust your son, Jesus, who died and rose again, and I accept your forgiveness through him. Bring me into that new life. Bring that new life into me. And Lord, help me to follow Jesus as my leader every day. If you've prayed that prayer, God has heard that prayer. He loves everyone who loves his son. If you've prayed that prayer, you're going to start a new life. You'll want some help with that. So I'm encouraging you to find somebody who's further along in the life and talk to them. Say, how do I do it? What do I do? Come talk to me. Talk to any of our elders or deacons or anybody you know who's living that life. And let's go with God into this new life. God, those of us who've had this life, those of us who are just receiving it, we bless your name. Through the crucified and resurrected Son of God, Jesus, our friend, our elder brother, our Savior, and our God, we pray. Amen.